Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. We are on the front end as I sit down and begin speaking into this mic of what has the potential to be a mammoth episode. So I am going to speak quickly, I'm going to condense stories, and we're going to move right along uh, because this is essentially going to be two episodes in one. We had mentioned in last week's episode, Traders Part 1, that we had split things into three different chunks. We had the Monday episode, we were going to do a Thursday episode, and then a bonus episode for the patrons. And folks were wondering what happened to that Thursday episode. And the short answer is we didn't have enough time in the studio. So when we record during the week, we use Mike's job, basically, uh, which is where we record on the weekends. We record it in general. But during the week, other people actually happen to use the studio. So we only got in there for a little bit less than an hour. And we had a judgment call. I either had to record the regular episode and not do the uh, patrons law 140 on administrative law judges. Or I could do the patron episode and then save the rest of the stuff for today. And that's what I did because for better or worse, I love all of you. Don't get me wrong. But we would not have a show if not for our patrons. So episode 75, you have not missed it. It is on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash Fisk, episode 75 came out last week and is on administrative law judges and the Donald Trump executive order changing how they are selected. So what we did is for this episode today, we took all of the new stuff plus the remaining old stuff, combined that together. Uh, I did take out all of the, what I've been calling policing white space stories. So stories of white people who can't mind their own fucking business and they call police on black folks for no discernible reason. Uh, We had one guy who was kicked out of a pool, a kid who uh, was told he needed a permit for his hot dog stand, a whole bunch of other shit. We had 24 of those just in a two-week time span. So if you do the math, that's more than one a day, all different stories, 24 of them in all. Uh, I've chunked all of them on the side. I don't know if we're going to do an episode of just them or not in the future. Probably not, but just know that they're there. Um, So what we've done is after taking all of that stuff out, uh, we still have about 58-ish stories to go through for this particular episode. So just kind of know that's coming. But before we get there, there are a lot of podcast notes that I've got to share with you first. I want to give a special thank you to Luke Parker. I don't know if any of you know him or follow him on Twitter, but he put together the cover art for this particular episode. Luke, thank you. Uh, several folks have wondered why we are not on Spotify, and now we are. So if you go to the show notes, fiscamall.com for this episode, the very uh, – no, it's not the first link because I'm going to cover that in a minute. The second link is a link to where we show up on Spotify. If you happen to be a Spotify aficionado, you should be able to find us. In addition, Google has come out with a new podcasts app, a podcast directory, and all that stuff. We are on there as well. So if you happen to like Android and Googly stuff, we are there. Um, What else? Okay. Uh, The podcast awards. I've mentioned this before. That's the first link in the show notes. We have been nominated for the 13th annual podcast awards hosted by Podcast Connect. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, the judges that they have, they've got like, you know, gurus to decide who wins in each category, but the only, they only consider five podcasts for each category. And those five are determined based on the total number of people who recommend they give that podcast a listen. So I need each of you to, after this segment, pause the podcast, 
go to fiscamall.com, check the show notes, click the very first link that will take you to the Podcast Awards website, uh, go through the process for logging in, and cast your votes. I don't care what you pick for most of the categories, because there's like 20-something categories of potential podcasts. I want you to go to News and Politics and pick us. We should be one of the first entries because it's hashtag Fiskamall. Hashtags are alpha sorted at the beginning of the alphabet. So pick us, please. If you want to also vote for us for the People's Choice Award, that would be great. But at the very least, vote for us in the politics and news category. The deadline is July 30th. So we only have one week left. And I know life gets busy and people are on vacation. So I want you to do it now. Pause the podcast. Do it now. I will still be here when you come back. I think that is all of these show notes. If you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you want to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, the people that help uh, basically pave Mike and keep the show running, you can do that at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. Uh, as I mentioned, we do have a bonus Law 140 there. You also get automatic access to all of the prior Law 140s if you become one of our sponsors. All right, so the the reason for the title last week and this week was the really wild revelations about how much our beloved Papaya Potus, Donald Trump, and the Republican Party that supports him have been co-opted by Vladimir Putin and the Russians. We talked last week about the new set of indictments, and the plan for this episode was to go over a lot of the crazy shit that had happened since then with the NATO meeting where Trump shit all over NATO repeatedly questioned whether or not the uh, United States would get involved if another country invoked Article 5. Uh, he shit all over Theresa May, the prime minister for the UK, walked that back, was asked who, uh, who was America's biggest foe, and his first answer was the European Union. I mean, Jesus. So we were going to talk about that. But then he had the press conference with Vladimir Putin where this was live and was one of the most shameful, embarrassing, spineless performances of any American president I've ever seen in my lifetime. And like, I'm a, I'm a history guy. I like American history. I joke with friends that history didn't begin until 1776. And I can't recall the time where we've had a more gutless president in office in front of another foreign leader. Like, you know, where I'm from, we would call him a pussy boy. Like, it was just so bad that it's obvious to me that he's compromised. He's a Russian asset. Now, I don't think he necessarily, I don't think Putin necessarily has a P tape or anything like that. I think the material that he's holding over Trump's head is that the Russians interfered to help make sure he got elected. And Trump will do or say anything necessary to try and stop that from coming out and make sure that, frankly, Vladimir can help him again in 2018 and 2020. But I don't think it's uh, out of the realm of reality that your American president has been compromised. But then the hits just kind of kept on coming. So David Remnick of New Yorker magazine had a great summary of all of this shit that's been going on. I'm going to give you a link in the show notes to his column because it is fantastic. Here is an extended quote, two paragraphs of it, of what David had to say. He says, quote, just as the president's comments following the torchlit white supremacist march last year in Charlottesville made it clear that racism was at the core of his character and his political strategy, the contemptible remarks he delivered alongside Vladimir Putin seemed to mark a turning point, even for 
some of his most ardent defenders. In the course of a single European journey, Trump set out to humiliate the leaders of Western Europe and declare them foes, to fracture long-standing military, economic, and political alliances, and to absolve Russia of its attempts to undermine the 2016 election. He did so clearly, repeatedly, and with conviction. Republicans in Congress, but not enough of them, and a selection of commentators on Fox News declared that Trump's performance in Helsinki had been disgraceful. The president's attempt to reverse the damage, clearly the result of a panicked White House staff, only worsened the matter. Speaking from the White House cabinet room on Tuesday, Trump tried to take his listeners for fools as he explained that he had merely been misunderstood. This was one of the most shameless walkback attempts in the history of the American presidency. Reading from prepared notes, which always lends to his delivery a hostage-like cadence, Trump tried to half-apologize to the American intelligence community for equating its analysis with that of Putin and the FSB. And with that, the lights suddenly went out. The president sat in darkness. Even before the worldwide commentariat had a chance to voice its incredulity, the White House electrical system had called bullshit on Trump. Or was it a higher power? That's just the start. It goes on from there. But then it kept on going because on Friday, the Department of Justice released an indictment against Maria Butina, who is a Russian spy in the United States, who was tasked with infiltrating the NRA and several other uh, people within the Republican uh, constellation of GOP-oriented groups. And then, over the weekend, you got the release of partially declassified FISA warrants against Carter Page, who was the Russian asset working on Trump's campaign as one of his foreign policy advisors. So we've been dealing with that. And it's just, it's been nonstop. So, like, I, you know, I, 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 words fail me. I'm, I'm flustered right now trying to figure out what to say because we've reached a point where the president is a threat to national security. We've reached a point where his apologists are a threat to national security. And we've reached a point where the Republican Party, which controls the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch, are a threat to national security. I never in my lifetime thought we would ever hit that point. I was a Reagan baby. I grew up with Reagan in office. When I was in elementary school, we got to watch the video, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, when I hit middle school and high school, the GOP was already doing these amazing documentaries of how great Ronald Reagan was. That I, I got a, I got a, a um, VHS cassette tape of it in high school. I've still got it somewhere amid my stuff. And to have just, you know, 20, 30 years later, a complete reversal where the president of the United States is giving a blowjob to the Russian president live. I mean, at least Bill Clinton had the courtesy to get his in the Oval Office. Vladimir Putin is like, service me on stage, bro. And Donald Trump is like, sure. You know, it's, it's astonishing to me. It is positively astonishing. So that's the political news. Uh, fuck the GOP. I'm, I'm beyond disappointed. And there's no real, there's no real way to, to couch that in any nicer language. The Republican Party sucks. They're absolutely fucking disgraceful. This guy should have been impeached and tossed out on his ass a year ago. I don't know why they haven't done it yet, frankly, because whether you like or dislike Mike Pence, he's just as conservative, and he doesn't have any of this fucking Russian baggage going along with it. I, I don't know what the fuck they're doing. All right, so in uh, criminal justice news, we got court stuff out of the Sixth Circuit where 
you know, because we're short on time, I'm not going to give you the details of this. The case is Stevens Rucker versus Columbus. We'll give you a link to the opinion. There's one line in the dissent that summarizes pretty much everything. The dissent says, quote, the majority opinion today holds that police can shoot and kill a non-fleeing suspect who is already gravely wounded, even when there is no immediate threat to the officers or the public. That gives you an idea what the facts are about. Basically, all the police got qualified immunity when they shot and killed a military veteran having a mental health episode and uh, shot him on three separate sets of occasions. Like it wasn't just shot him three times. They shot him far more than three times in three different volleys. It's totally ridiculous. Uh, in general research news, we've got several different studies. The first one is out of the American Journal of Public Health, where they find out this is not going to surprise any of you, but blacks and Latino men are more likely to be killed by police than whites. Uh, among the highlights of that study, it says, quote, police kill on average 2.8 men per day. Police were responsible for about 8% of all homicides with adult male victims during the time span 2012 to 2018. Black men's mortality risk is between 1.9 and 2.4 deaths per 100,000 black men per year. The Latino risk is between 0.8 and 1.2, and white risk is between 0.6 and 0.7. So if you're good with the math, that means that black folks are four times as likely, black men are four times as likely to be shot dead by police as white men. Uh, among their conclusions, they note, quote, police homicide risk is higher than suggested by official data. No surprise. We've mentioned that police departments deliberately don't collect this information. Uh, black and Latino men are at higher risk for death than our white men. And these disparities vary markedly across place. So they tracked murder rates uh, by police at different geographies. We'll give you a link to that study. Again, that's out of the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, from Clemson, there's a new study showing that racism, not economic anxiety, determines people's immigration views. I'm sure that shocks some of you. Uh, Mother Jones had a, I'm going to give you the link to the actual study, but Mother Jones had a write-up that summarized things fairly well. It says, quote, what is it that gets so many conservative whites so enraged about immigration? Are they afraid immigrants will take away their jobs or do they just not like non-white people very much? Stephen Miller, a political science professor at Clemson, decided to test this data using election survey results going back to 1992. I don't want to keep you in suspense, so here's the basic answer. And they post a chart that checks, uh, basically compares your thoughts on immigration across several different categories, gender, income, education, employment status, the state's unemployment rate, whether or not the state's economy got worse over time, whether or not the voter thought the state's economy will get worse over time, and racial resentment. And what's apparent from the graphics they note, quote, nothing related to economic anxiety has any correlation at all with attitudes toward immigration, and it never has. Going back 25 years, the correlations are barely different from zero and practically every year. But the correlation with racial resentment is both consistent and sky high. If you don't like brown people, you don't like immigration. So we'll give you a link to both the story in Mother Jones and the study itself, which was posted to GitHub. Uh, from my alma mater, the North Carolina State University, there's a new study out showing that teachers interpret identical behavior of students differently based on the race of the student, including the perception of whether or not the student is angry. So we'll give you a link to the full paper in the show notes. The title is Pre-Service Teachers Racialized Emotion Recognition, Anger Bias, and Hostility Attributions. 
From a summary of the study in the News and Observer, they say, quote, in a study published last week, NC State University researchers showed that prospective teachers were worse at recognizing emotions on black faces than on white faces. The undergraduates also mislabeled more black faces as angry and thought misbehaving black boys showed more hostility than misbehaving white boys. And it goes through the methodology and other stuff. The, uh, what they note is that on a scale from one to five, where they're rating the aggression of the child, on average, the black boys rated 3.37 and the white boys rated 2.12 for identical behavior. The preliminary study only had a small sample. They only had 40 people in it. But because of the results, there is now going to be a follow-up study bankrolled by a major foundation that will end up being a collaboration between three universities and having a much larger sample size. Uh, out of the Prison Policy Initiative, they have a new study out looking at the unemployment rates among the formerly incarcerated. And what they find is that it's more than five times the unemployment rate of the general population. That is insane. Uh, from their coverage, it says, quote, over 600,000 people make the difficult transition from prisons to the community each year. And although there are many challenges involved in the transition, the roadblocks to securing a job have particularly severe consequences. Employment helps formerly incarcerated people gain economic stability after release and reduces the likeliness that they return to prison, promoting greater public safety to the benefit of everyone. But despite the overwhelming benefits of employment, people who have been to prison are largely shut out. Out of the labor market. We find that the unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated people is nearly five times higher than the unemployment rate for the general United States population and substantially higher than even the worst years of the Great Depression. Although we have long known that labor market outcomes for people who have been to prison are poor, these results point to extensive economic exclusion that would certainly be the cause of great public concern if they were mirrored in the general population. These inequalities persist even when controlling for age among working age individuals, that's the years 25 to 44 in this particular data set. The unemployment rate for formerly incarcerated people was 27.3% overall, compared with just 5.2% unemployment employment for their general public peers in the same age group. That such a large percentage of prime working age formerly incarcerated people are without jobs but want to work suggests structural factors like discrimination play an important role in shaping job attainment. Our analysis also shows that formerly incarcerated people are more likely to be active in the labor market than the general public. Among 25 to 44-year-old formerly incarcerated people, 93.3% are either employed or actively looking for work, compared to just 83.8% among their general population peers of similar ages. Though unemployment among formerly incarcerated people is five times higher than among the general public, these results show that formerly incarcerated people want to work. And it goes on from there. It's a very long read. Uh, they're also, of course, as you can imagine, it's worse by race. So they've got a table in there where they show that black women who have a record, they've been to prison, their unemployment rate is 43.6%. For black men, it's 352 versus white women, it's 23.2 and white men, it's 18.4. So it's still scandalously high for everybody. But it's particularly bad for racial minorities. And this is it's incredibly tragic because this is a huge waste of human potential. You have people who want to work but can't. They want to develop their skills, but they can't. Uh, and you end up 
costing public tax dollars in a whole bunch of different contexts because if they end up on some form of welfare, you're paying for that. If they reoffend and go back to jail, they're paying for that. The fact they don't have a job means they can't pay more taxes on their own, so you're paying for everything else that they can't contribute to. It's just it's a huge net loss for everybody. The astonishing fuckload of people that we route through the criminal justice system ends up having follow-on effects that hurt everyone for decades on end. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Our public policy is insane. Uh, So that's it as far as the studies go. In federal news, your Department of Justice, Jesus Christ, these people have now admitted that they've taken children of United States citizens into custody. Uh, From this story, it says, quote, U.S. officials at the southern border may have taken a child of a U.S. citizen into custody, administration lawyers revealed on Tuesday. In a court filing to give an update on efforts to reunite families, lawyers for the Department of Justice said the administration is unable to determine if the child was separated from the parent. The child is under the age of five, according to the filing. Officials did not give any other details about the child or the parent's potential whereabouts. One child, quote, cannot be reunified at this time because the parent's location has been unknown, the filing said. Defendants are unable to conclusively determine whether the parent is a class member, and records show the parent and child might be United States citizens. Now, this shouldn't surprise you, because if you go back to episode 61, we talked about the Los Angeles Times analysis that showed that both ICE and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, they routinely arrest Americans and they lock up Americans for alleged immigration violations. Way back in episode 25, we talked about how the Department of Justice was trying to deport an American citizen and Marine veteran. They were trying to deport him anyway. This is a set of rogue agencies that are totally out of control. So, yes, I'm part of abolish ICE. I think that needs to be done. Bring back the INS. You know, and actually, while I'm on it, let me let me point this out. Notice the difference in nomenclature compared to what we used to have to what we have now. It used to be everything was done through the Immigration and Nationalization Service. That was the name of the agency. Then after 9-11, when we created the Department of Homeland Security, we got rid of the INS And we replaced it with Immigrations and Customs Enforcement and Customs and Border Protection, these big manly sounding agencies that act like, you know, big dick swinging people with massive guns on their, you know, bodies going out to defend the homeland against, you know, terrorists and whatever the fuck else when they're not. They're busy using our tax money to do stupid shit like lock up Americans and try and have them deported. And if that's not good enough for you, if locking up American citizens is not sufficiently outrageous, yes, this past week, they sent a one-year-old child into court to defend itself. From that story, it says, quote, a one-year-old boy in federal custody who appeared in immigration court without his parents in Phoenix briefly played with a ball, drank from a bottle, then cried hysterically as he was about to leave the courtroom on Friday. But he was eventually granted a voluntary departure order. Woo, talk about fucking nice. So that he can go to Honduras where they already shipped his father. They couldn't even wait for have this shit done together when the kid is one fucking year old. Uh, so the little boy identified in court only as Johan was one of the children who appeared in the Arizona court Friday. One boy held up five fingers when the judge asked him his age. Judge John Richardson said he was, quote, embarrassed to ask if one-year-old Johan understood the proceedings. Yeah, I fucking would be too. He continued, quote, I don't know who you would explain it to unless you think that a one-year-old could learn immigration law, he told Johan's attorney. This is utterly fucking insane. Like, can you, can you, I I can't process the insanity of having a one-year-old in court. 
I can't. It just doesn't compute. Like I've seen one-year-olds in court when their parents can't find a babysitter. But to have a one-year-old defending himself in immigration court is fucking bonkers. All right, in state-by-state justice news, we've got a lot of it. We'll start out in Alabama and Dothan. There's a long read in the New York Times about prosecutors trying to execute a pastor. From that story, it says, quote, A Google search will show that Pastor Kenneth Glasgow first made news in 2001 as the former crack addict and prison inmate who was fretted over by his older half-brother, the Reverend Al Sharpton Jr. The local media in Dothan, a small city in Alabama's Wiregrass region, have long followed his story of reinvention from felon to do-gooder who hand-delivered meals, organized unity marches, and, in a place where few were willing to speak out, crusaded against brutality and racism. During the Senate race between Roy Moore and Doug Jones, last year, Mr. Glasgow gained attention with his effort to register as voters thousands of people with felony records, a campaign that thrilled left-wing groups while outraging Breitbart News. Nowadays, though, one thing tops the search results, a mugshot, his eyes hooded, his white goatee jutting out at a defiant angle. Because he has been charged with murder, and they're trying to send him to death row, Because, as you read through the story, what you find out is that he was giving an acquaintance a ride and his car was hit twice by two different vehicles. The passenger got out and shot at the driver of the car that hit him, thinking that this was an attack of some sort. Uh, Pastor Glasgow was like hiding in the car because he didn't know what the hell was going on. But under Alabama's, Alabama's, Alabama's accomplice law, because he was giving the killer a ride, he's just as liable. So he's currently being prosecuted. In Etowah County, that is Roy Moore's stomping grounds, we talk about Sheriff Todd Entrekin. You might remember, we've talked about that guy before. He was the one that stole a bunch of money that was supposed to be for meals at the prison that he oversaw and used it to buy himself a fancy house and a boat and all that other shit. Endorsed Roy Moore, I will note. Roy Moore being the child molester. Why does that matter? Well, from the story, it says, quote, Police are now investigating Etowah County Sheriff Todd Entrekin for allegedly having sex with underage girls. During drug-fueled parties, he hosted for fellow law enforcement officers and other adult men in their early 90s. Or in the early 90s. They weren't in their early 90s. It was in the early 90s that he was apparently fucking underage girls. So we'll give you a link to that story so you can check that out. That's Alabama in Arizona. In Parker, Arizona, turns out the first rule of Fisk is for politicians too. Politicians will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. In this case, quote, an elected state house representative for Arizona's 5th district, Republican Paul Mosley, bragged to a sheriff's deputy that he drives at speeds of up to 140 miles an hour, claiming legislative immunity. The interaction took place around 4.30 p.m. on March 27th, according to public records, when Mosley was pulled over by a La Paz County Sheriff's deputy just north of Parker, Arizona, doing 97 miles in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. For people who are bad at math like me, that is 42 miles over the speed limit. According to the deputy's report, Mosley was swerving in and out of traffic, passing vehicles on State Route 95. When he pulled Mosley over, the deputy said that he saw Mosley waving something out the driver's side window. When the deputy got out of his patrol vehicle and made contact with Mosley on the passenger side, he said it turned out that Mosley had been showing him a placard, which indicated that he was an elected state representative, and reportedly told the deputy that he shouldn't waste his time processing a citation because he has legislative immunity. On video captured by the officer's body camera, and side note, it's embedded in the link we're going to give you in the show notes, Mosley is heard saying that he drives at subquote 120, 130. The officer replies, really? 
Mosley laughs back, saying, subquote, yeah, this goes 140. That's what I like about it, talking about his Lexus. Fuck that guy. Uh, in Tucson, we also have a Republican Senate candidate who bragged about killing his mother. Yes, this is an actual thing from that story. And this is this is one of three or four different Republican candidates for office that have some really creepy shit going on. And these are the nominees for these particular positions. Uh, from here, it says, quote, a big crowd gathered in a Tucson church last week, ready to hear candidates' plans for gun control legislation from people vying to become lawmakers at the state capitol. All was going more or less as expected. Then it was Bobby Wilson's turn to speak. Wilson, one of two Republican candidates who attended the July 9th meeting, took the mic and told a story of how he shot and killed a crazed attacker in an act of self-defense while he was a teenager. That attacker, it turned out, was his mom. Court records and newspaper articles from the time suggest there may be more to the story than Wilson's account, however. Those records show he was charged with the murder of his mother and sister, and soon after his arrest, he confessed to those charges. He later recanted his confession and claimed he had amnesia about the events of the night in question. Details reported at the time in a local newspaper, in addition to court records from Wilson's case, both differ significantly in numerous regards from Wilson's account that he gave to the Arizona Republic newspaper. Uh, according to the newspaper that they are quoting from, which no longer exists, but they've pulled up microfilm stuff that they've linked to, the charred bodies of LaVon and Judy Wilson were found lying together in bed, subquote, in a perfectly relaxed position, indicating they died in their sleep from suffocation. The paper reported that neighbors heard an explosion and rushed to the house to find young Wilson lying in the grass gasping for breath. The paper said he was suffering from smoke inhalation and had minor cuts and burns. Initially, authorities anticipated no foul play was involved, but they proceeded with an investigation. One week later, the paper reported that Wilson had confessed to murdering his mother and sister. The paper said Wilson led officers to where he buried the rifle used to kill them. Wilson admitted to shooting his mother. Then when his sister ran at him, he crushed her skull with the rifle butt. He then placed both bodies on the bed, poured gas around the house, and lit a match. And this guy's bragging about it as he runs for office. He wants to become a state legislator in Arizona. Holy shit. Uh, out of Arkansas and Walnut Ridge, there's no way I can adequately summarize this story. You've got to read the whole thing. It's from Radley Balco in The Watch regarding the arrest of Adam Finley. Here's an excerpt. He says, When body camera footage of an aggressive or abusive police officer goes viral, the response from law enforcement groups is often to caution that we shouldn't judge the entire system based on actions of a few bad apples. That's fair enough. But what does it say about the system when the cops get away with their bad behavior? What if, despite video footage clearly showing that the cops are in the wrong, sheriffs and police chiefs cover for them anyway? What if local prosecutors do too? What if even mayors and city attorneys get into the act? Adam Finley had such an interaction with a bad cop. He was roughed up, sworn at, and handcuffed. When he tried to file a complaint, he was hit with criminal charges. The local police chief turned Finley's wife against him, which, according to both Finley and her, eventually ended their marriage. The fact that video of the incident should have vindicated him didn't seem to matter. Finley's trouble, first reported by the Jonesboro Sun and Stan Morris at NEA Report, I found that stands for Northeast Arkansas, uh, began in December 2016 in Walnut Ridge. It's a small town of about 5,000 in the northeast part of the state. Officer Matthew Mercado of the Walnut Ridge Police Department pulled Finley over near the railroad yard where Finley works. 
but Finley hadn't committed any traffic infraction. Instead, Mercado apparently suspected that Finley didn't really work for the railroad and therefore was trespassing or perhaps engaged in some sort of criminal mischief. And it goes on from there. But what you find is that the officer's microphone on his body cam was turned off for the initial part of the interaction. When he cuts it on, he starts narrating total bullshit that is not really backed up by the video, which happens to be for the entire thing. The dash cam that should have cleared up what took place, the city claimed they couldn't get it because of subquote software updates. The officer doesn't charge Finley until Finley tries to file a complaint, at which point he gets charged. Uh, the prosecutor moves forward with prosecuting him, even though all of the charges are eventually thrown out and Finley is acquitted. Both the police and the city attorney try to mislead the local press about what happened, and it just goes on and on and on. So we'll give you a link to that, and you should read it. Out of California, we've got four different stories. The first one is in Alameda County, and I'm not going to bother giving you the quotes, but the gist of it is that they have approved more settlement money for police brutality cases than anywhere else in that part of California. Uh, they talk about a $950,000 settlement approved for the death of 23-year-old Ja'Cory Calhoun. They talk about the officer who killed Calhoun had two other civil rights suits that they settled for $10,000 and $7,000. And over the course of just three years, quote, the Alameda County Sheriff's Office has racked up more than $15.5 million in settlements and judgments in civil rights cases more than any other law enforcement agency in the region. So congratulations if you happen to live in Alameda County. It's a rather dubious honor being number one in terms of uh, police brutality payouts, but there you go. In Riverside County, there's a lengthy story about basically it's, it's pre-crime in a nutshell. Like they're using a pre-crime algorithm for students to determine who they should start throwing in jail. Uh, the introductory piece, this is a long read, I'm going to give you the link, but they talk about a student named Andrew M. And it starts out, quote, Andrew M.'s first interaction with the criminal justice system began with an orange. On February 9th of 2017, when he was 13, Andrew was playfully kicking the fruit around with some friends on school grounds during lunch when he accidentally sent the orange in the direction of a Moreno Valley officer standing nearby. The orange went through the officer's legs, and Andrew was handcuffed and shepherded into the principal's office, where the assistant principal searched his backpack and found marijuana. Andrew received a civil infraction for possession that day. A month later, he was instructed to show up at the police station to discuss probation. Sitting in a windowless room with his father, grandfather, uncle, and two officers, including one who was armed, Andrew was handed a contract and told that he could participate in the Youth Accountability Team, the YAT, probation program, instead of going to juvenile court. Now, I'm going to skip over all of this other shit, but I want you to hear about some of the stuff that they do as part of this YAT program. He had to attend school, earn good grades, abide by an 8 p.m. curfew, participate in 25 hours of community service, meet with a probation officer regularly, follow all YAT instructions, go to counseling, go to weekly programs that the Moreno Valley Police Department held, visit a correctional facility. Uh, any violation meant that you went to prosecution, like actual normal prosecution for weed. He was repeatedly forced to leave class to talk with YAT officers, even though as a result of doing so, he would miss assignments, which would lead to lower grades. He had to deal with in-home visits that the officers would make while unannounced, and so on and so on and so on. 
And eventually, of course, you're not going to be able to successfully complete this program, which that's the whole reason why it's there. Probation is designed for people to fail. It's, it's set up that way. So less than two weeks, I think it says in here, uh, he ended up having to go to court anyway and was given a, a sentence of 10 community service hours and complete a drug test and pay a fine. The YAT program had 12,971 students in it over the time span of 2005 to 2016. Uh, 25% of them were for a non-criminal offense in the first place. And I'm sure that this makes no surprise to any of you, but black students were two and a half times more likely than whites to be put into the program. And Latino students were 1.5 times more likely to be put into the program. It's basically an amped up school to prison pipeline. Like this is some really, this is insane. And this really is, if you think about it, this is a make work program for law enforcement. Now, conservatives talk about these all the time where the government just invents shit for bureaucrats to do so that we can justify continuing to pay bureaucrats. That's what this is. Routing tens of thousands of students into a program where they have all of these additional hoops that they have to jump through, that requires more officers to administer all of the hoops. When if you just didn't have any of that shit, you'd have nothing for the officers to do, and theoretically you would have to lay them off. And no one wants to do that because police unions are loved by both parties, because Republicans love law and order and Democrats love public sector unions. So that's out of Riverside County. In San Bernardino County, you've probably seen this already. This is one of the older uh, stories. But an ADA, as an assistant district attorney, the head of the gang unit, has been suspended for numerous racist Facebook and Instagram posts. His name is Michael Selium. Uh, for example, regarding Congressman Maxine Waters, he said, quote, being a loudmouth cunt in the ghetto, you would think someone would have shot this bitch by now. Uh, he posted a photo of Michelle Obama holding a sign that reads, Trump grabbed me by the penis. He's got assorted anti-Hispanic memes on his social media. Here's the kicker. This motherfucker makes nearly a quarter million dollars every single year. He gets paid 143000 in salary. He gets another 6000 in other pay, whatever the fuck that is. And he gets 60000 in benefits, including his pension. Uh, comes out to $208,662.96 every single year in taxpayer money. So you have this guy who is clearly biased, and guess what? Bias in prosecutions, bias in prosecutors, both leads to bias in outcomes. Uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we do have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. It looks like homicides are approaching near all-time lows. From that story, it says, quote, Killings in the Bay Area's biggest cities plunged by one-third in the first half of the year, a trend that puts the region on pace to possibly see less bloodshed in 2018 than it has in decades. The reasons behind the drop-off, driven by gains in San Francisco and Oakland, as well as Vallejo and Antioch, are difficult to pin down, according to police officials and criminologists. But the change is unmistakable. It's also consistent with broader long-term decreases in homicides and violent crime in California and around the country since the brutal decades of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Through the end of June, police in the 15 most populous Bay Area cities recorded 84 killings, down from 122 in the same period in 2017. In the past 20 years, the lowest number of homicides the 15 cities have seen in a single year is 220 in 2001. The high during that period came in 1998, when the cities were besieged by 438 slayings. 
the department is in the unusual position. Here's, here's part of the kicker. So this is part of why I think you see drops in crime like this. So they get a quote from the commander of the San Francisco Police Department. But listen to this. The department is in the unusual position of enjoying a 112% homicide clearance rate. Now, what does that mean? So the clearance rate is when, you know, if, say, five people are killed and you solve four of those cases via an arrest, you've had an 80% clearance rate. So to get a clearance rate above 100%, that means you've solved enough cases to match the number of killings so far this year, plus you've solved enough older cases, which you would call cold cases, to end up with that greater than 100% margin. So basically the police are doing very good investigative work and people who are committing homicides are getting arrested or prosecuted. So in a good police department, typically you would see a homicide clearance rate of somewhere between 50 to 70% in any given year. It's not normal to have a high clearance rate for murder because a lot of times your witnesses are either dead or they don't want to speak. They don't, don't want to risk being retaliated against. So like if you were to tell me that Durham had a 70% clearance rate in a given year, I would think that was pretty good. you know. But these people are at a 112% homicide clearance rate for uh, 2018. That is stunning. That is fantastic. So they also note some other spots, quote, San Francisco was far from alone in reducing homicides. Oakland saw 31 murders through June, down from 33. Antioch had only one homicide through June compared with four last year. Vallejo's first half numbers dropped from 10 to 2. And extra kicker, quote, the numbers bolster studies that show California's sweeping criminal justice reforms from the past seven years, which have sought to keep more lower level offenders out of jails and prisons, have not fueled violent crime. That won't be a surprise to those of you that have listened to this podcast for a while because we've already shared with you stories that show that same thing. That's all out of California. In Colorado, this is some crazy shit, uh, in Aurora, a police officer who was fired for racial slurs is now back on the job because of course he is. From that story, it says, quote, Police Chief Nick Metz decided to fire Lieutenant Chuck DeShazer after he was caught calling citizens, quote, Alabama porch monkeys on a subordinate's body camera. But DeShazer appealed to the Civil Service Commission, which ruled in his favor. On June 18th of 2017, Denver police shot a suspect who ran from them in Aurora. The Aurora Police Department responded and, according to city records, encountered, quote, unruly neighbors upset over the shooting. While discussing the next steps with an APD sergeant, DeShazer said, we got the Alabama porch monkeys all contained. The sergeant gasps and quickly turns the body camera off. Now I'm going to pause. How outrageous is that? That you see the whole time you have this body camera on is to get police misconduct on camera, but a police officer does some racist shit and you instantly go to cut the camera off. That's problematic in itself. The sergeant gasps, cuts off the camera. Story continues, quote, I was appalled. I was hurt. And the reason I was hurt was because that comment is not indicative of the men and women of this police department, said Chief Metz, who conducted an investigation and decided to fire DeShazer. So, quote, as a lieutenant and as a leader in this agency, I pretty quickly lost confidence that this person could lead others and also lost confidence in his ability to be a police officer. But DeShazer quickly filed an appeal. In an official report, the commission acknowledged that DeShazer violated department policy and that his language was, quote, absolutely reprehensible. They also acknowledged that DeShazer had been written up three times before, once for making sexually offensive comments. 
but they concluded that his remarks did not merit his termination. So if you live in Aurora, good luck. Uh, Out of Denver, Chase Bishop gets his gun back. He is the FBI agent, you might remember, who dropped his gun while dancing in a nightclub, picked it up, and managed to shoot somebody. Uh, The judge decided that he can have his gun back. Out of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, our beloved nation's capital, we have yet another random fecophiliac on the police force who likes to dig in people's asses for sport. From the story, it says, quote, a man in Washington, D.C. is now suing a police officer for probing his anus and grabbing his genitals in an invasive body search during a stop and frisk last year. I'm going to do a sidebar. It's not a stop and frisk when they're digging in your ass. All right. It continues, quote, a two minute video of the incident shows M.B. Cottingham, a 39 year old man who works as an ice cream vendor, being searched by Metropolitan Police Department officer Sean Lohakono in the city's Bellevue section on September 27th. Cottingham and his friends were on a sidewalk discussing plans for his birthday when two cop cars pulled up. And this is all according to the ACLU that's happening to uh, represent Cottingham in this case. Several officers then asked Cottingham and his friends if they had any weapons. The group says they did not. Cottingham then pulled out a legal amount of marijuana from his sock and said that Loha Kono can uh, have it and pat him down to avoid any further confrontation. An officer was later seen on the video pouring out a bottle of alcohol, but the officer took what should have been a routine frisk and turned it into a, subquote, shocking and unjustified invasion of Cottingham's privacy, according to the lawsuit. You hear on the video, and they've got a link to the video where you can see this stuff, uh, subquote, he stuck his finger in my crack, man, Cottingham said to his friends during the video. Don't do that, man, I don't have nothing. Cottingham then followed the officer's instructions to squat down to allow the search to continue, but the officer continued prodding far beyond the scope of a standard pat-down, jamming his fingers into the man's buttocks, his anus, and grabbing his scrotum. Got some really disturbed motherfuckers on the police force. That's out of D.C. Uh, In Florida, we got a lot of Florida stories. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six? Do I have seven? No, just six. No, I do have seven. Yeah, we got seven stories out of Florida. Jesus. All right, so we'll start in Biscayne Park. You might remember in episode 72, we talked about the police there basically choosing to frame a random black teenager, pinning an additional four burglaries on him so they could have higher stats. Uh, Well, it turns out that this is actually what they were doing all the time under this particular police chief. From that story, it says, quote, The indictment was damning enough. A former police chief of Biscayne Park and two officers charged with falsely pinning four burglaries on a teenager just to impress village leaders with a perfect crime-solving record. But the accusations revealed in federal court last month left out far uglier details of past policing practices in tranquil Biscayne Park. Records obtained by the Miami Herald suggest that during the tenure of former Chief Raimundo Atesiano, the command staff pressured some officers into targeting random black people to clear cases. Subquote, if they have burglaries that are open cases that are not solved yet, if you see anybody black walking through our streets and they have somewhat of a record, arrest them so we can pin them for all the burglaries, one cop said in an internal probe ordered in 2014. Beyond the apparent race targeting, the report described the department run like a dysfunctional frat house. It outlines allegations that the brass openly drank on duty, engaged in a host of financial shenanigans, and that the number two in command during the period, Captain Lawrence Churchman, routinely spouted racist and sexist insults. So that's out of Piscane Park. In Broward County, we have a GOP congressional candidate arrested for attempted murder. Uh, his name is Javier Manjares. He's apparently known as the publisher of the Shark Tank blog. 
And I'm not going to bother giving you all the details. Just know that he tried to kill his uh, sister's boyfriend, I think it looks like. Yeah. Man, Harris's sister and Jason Holonowski, who was the boyfriend, ended up with a broken nose and bullet holes in his pickup truck because apparently Man Harris didn't like the fact that they were uh, dating. So he's been charged with attempted murder. He is running for Congress in Florida's 22nd Congressional District. Next is in Lake Butner. So we've talked before back in, oh, I should have put what episode. So you might remember there was this group of three Klansmen that all worked for the Department of Corrections, and they were plotting to kill a black inmate when that got foiled. Well, it turns out that they were guilty of that particular crime and lost their pensions as a result. And one of those guys actually appealed, trying to get his pension back, and that appeal was denied. The story says, quote, A former correctional officer convicted of conspiring to murder a former inmate in a case that involved the Ku Klux Klan will lose his state retirement benefits, according to an order issued this week. The State Board of Administration issued the order upholding a recommendation from an administrative law judge that David Moran should forfeit his benefits. Moran, a former sergeant at the Florida Department of Corrections Reception and Medical Center at Lake Butler, was convicted in a plot to kill a black former inmate. Moran and another correctional officer and a former officer involved in the plot were all members of the Ku Klux Klan. The men were arrested after enlisting an FBI informant to help kill the former inmate. Moran sought an administrative hearing, contending in part that there was not a connection between his job at the Department of Corrections and the conspiracy. So basically, these guys aren't too fucking bright either. Uh, Out of Melbourne, Florida, two Melbourne police officers received two-week suspensions without pay after an anonymous email tipped off the press that they were basically abusing payroll stuff, and then the press then contacted the police to check it out. And I'm going to give you the link to the story, but in addition to these two, there's a Lieutenant Stephen Sadoff and an Officer Brittany Skovsgaard who ended up basically not showing up to shifts and getting paid for it anyway. Buried further down in the story, it says two sergeants also received written reprimands and a detective and another officer were both referred for retraining. So you have at least six different officers lying on their timesheets to get paid taxpayer money. Uh, Out of Miami, we've got two separate stories. One, Florida police were ordered to return $20,000 in glitter-covered cash that they seized from a stripper as part of a traffic stop. Not going to give you any of the details on that, but I will give you a link in the show notes. Also out of Miami, a police officer allowed her girlfriend to ride with her, pretending to be a police officer, had a badge and a gun and everything else, uh, stopped the guy, falsely arrested him. While he was in jail, called the guy's mother to demand $2,400 to have him released. The mother paid the money. The guy wasn't released. And then when the guy was going to testify against both the girlfriend and the officer that allowed this to happen, the officer reported him to ICE to try and get him deported so that he could not testify against her. So we'll give you a link to that story as well. And then in Volusia County, we have one of the whitest things I have ever seen. Quote, a couple apprehended after a high-speed chase posed with a smile for a selfie alongside the arresting officers, as shown in video and photos released by a Florida sheriff's office. A Volusia County Sheriff's Office deputy can be heard telling Matthew White and Amber Tainer, subquote, we're getting a photo with you guys, just so you know, so look good. Should we smile? Tainer replied before doing so. Authorities had been on the hunt for White and Tainer for two months since they allegedly stole two pressure washers from a Walmart, in addition to other felony charges. Police gave chase last Thursday after Deputy Stephen Wells spotted a couple driving an allegedly stolen vehicle. 
After the one a couple pulled over, they, subquote, bailed out and ran, but they were taken into custody quickly without incident, according to a statement on the Facebook page. Now, you're probably not surprised to learn that these two were white, which is why they weren't shot dead. Uh, but while we're at it, we had a comment session on Twitter about things that were so white. I'm going to give you a link to the thread. It starts off with this particular story because this is one of the whitest stories I think I've ever covered on this podcast. In Georgia, out of Coweta County, a judge sentenced the guy to a year in prison for weed possession, uh, but then changed her mind when the news got a hold of it and she didn't like the ensuing publicity. So this is from WXIA. They go by the phrase 11 Alive. And the story says, quote, a Coweta County state court judge reduced a man's jail sentence following questions from the 11 Alive investigators. The judge originally sentenced 37-year-old Robert Stovall to 12 months behind bars for possession of less than an ounce of weed. When a Newman police officer asked Robert Stovall if he had marijuana on him after a traffic stop, Stovall confessed. I do have a small personal amount that I smoke recreationally, he said. Officer Alec Taylor even acknowledged his cooperation. It's a tiny little bit like a few nuggets, Taylor said to another officer. He was as nice as can be about it. According to February 8, 2017 video, Taylor pulled Stovall over for a broken tag light. We're going to come back to that in a second. The incident report showed Taylor found 1.5 grams worth of weed in his car, a misdemeanor crime in Georgia. And I'm going to note that's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of weed. 1.5 grams is hardly anything. Uh, the Coweta County Solicitor's Office recommended a $1,300 fine, a year probation, and community service. During court, Stovall's attorney told Coweta County Judge Shay Van Patten Polikos that Stovall could not afford the fine and accepting the solicitor's plea deal would have set his client up for failure because he had no way of reaching his probation officer because Stovall is homeless, jobless, and his vehicle was on its last leg. Officer Taylor even mentioned those problems with Stovall's car in the incident report, noting that he had to give the car a jump. Moody asked Judge Polikos for jail time instead, and at that point, Stovall had already been incarcerated for 21 days. So everyone kind of assumed that this guy would get out for time served, because 21 days is a shitload of time for minor weed possession. But the judge instead sentenced him to 12 months in jail, the maximum that the law allowed in Georgia. Uh, continues, quote, Judge Polikos declined an on-camera interview with Eleven Alive, but over the phone said she stood by her sentence, citing the fact that Stovall had three prior marijuana possession arrests. Stovall has no history of violent offenses, and two of the three prior possession charges were more than 10 years ago. A few days after Eleven Alive reached out to the judge, she scheduled a conference call in her office with Defense Attorney Moody, Solicitor General Sandy Weisenbaker, and herself. According to a court reporter present for the meeting, Judge Polikos said she was, subquote, contacted by a reporter. She then suggested multiple times to Moody that he may want to consider filing a motion for reconsideration, subquote, rather than posting stuff on social media. So basically, she ended up changing the guy's sentence from 12 months in prison to 57 days that he had already served. But the damage was already done because during those two months that he was locked up, his car had been auctioned off. And when you look at the video, it turns out that the light over his license plate was working just fine. 
So that's out of Coweta County in Doraville. There's an expose on these field drug tests. I'm not going to go into the story because we've talked about them before. Basically, these tests cost $2 and they're bullshit. They give false positives all the fucking time. So they go through several different stories where they've given false positives for cotton candy, goodies, headache powder, breath mints, vitamins. They talk about a particular couple who was arrested because their folic acid was tested as drugs. The woman was pregnant, was taking folic acid supplements. For some reason, that tested positive. Both her and her husband were arrested. They were in jail for two weeks before they could finally get released on bond. And during that time, they got fired from their respective jobs because, hey, fuck it. And then five months later the charges were dropped because the crime lab said, no, wait, this was folic acid. This was not drugs at all whatsoever. So people know that these stupid drug tests don't work. They give a shitload of false positives, but departments keep using them anyway because they want to lock people up. They aspire to throw people in jail because they make more money that way. They prove their utility to the public, which enables them to demand of politicians that they get more money to hire more officers so they can do less work or give their existing officers better pay. Uh, Out of Gwinnett, we talked last week about that uh, Dodge Charger Hellcat that they spent $70,000 to buy, claiming it was drug forfeiture money from a federal program. Well, now the federal government wants their money back because they said that it was extravagant. The county has said they're going to comply. Not going to give you the details. I'm going to give you a link to the story. But here's the catch. Remember, that initial purchase was paid with drug forfeiture money. But now that it's going to be reimbursed, that means that the car was actually paid with taxpayer money. So keep that in mind. They're not getting rid of the car. They're just paying more of your taxpayer dollars so the chief can keep it. Uh, At a Roswell, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And in this case, they're deciding that they're going to use a coin flip app on a phone to decide whether or not someone should be arrested. From that story, it says, quote, Roswell's police chief has released a statement in response to an 11 Alive investigation that showed a woman being arrested after officers used a coin flip app to apparently determine her fate. Video first uncovered by 11 Alive investigator Brendan Keefe showed what happened after Sarah Webb was pulled over for allegedly speeding past a Roswell cruiser. In the video, Roswell police officers Courtney Brown and Christy Wilson are heard discussing what they should do. Brown, who had added a reckless driving charge among the list of possible charges because of wet pavement, tells Wilson that she didn't have her speed detection. They weren't actually using radar. Wilson notes that the driver doesn't have any tickets. That's when Brown opens a coin flip app on her phone. They decided to arrest the woman. Uh, The woman found out about the fateful flip from the TV investigators. She had requested the video from police, but that request was denied. With 11 Alive's help, she was able to get the video on July 6th. On July 9th, the charges against her were dismissed. Uh, At a Warner Robins, Georgia, we do have good news. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Well, this is kind of mixed news. So the story is like nice, but it's got a bad premise. Uh, A nine-year-old Georgia boy named Jalen Manns was diagnosed with a brain tumor in May and underwent brain surgery on Friday. Before he went in for the procedure, though, he did receive a special visit from the Warner Robins Police Department officers who brought him gifts and even prayed with him. Uh, There's one officer along with his canine who kneeled down beside the boy as they're praying, and there's a video of it that went viral. So that was a good feel-good story, and I hope that uh, Jalen makes a full recovery. I was out of Georgia. In Illinois, out of Chicago, we have the first rule of Fisk. 
Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. From the story, it says, quote, One of Chicago's finest is under investigation after he was caught on camera harassing two unarmed black men and quipping, subquote, I kill motherfuckers. The officer is seen in the video in an unmarked car, but in full uniform, minus his name and badge, taunting the young men. I kill motherfuckers. The officer could be heard repeating the men or repeating to the men as they were recording. So I'm going to give you a link to the story. You should watch the video. But the interesting part is that the guys are trying to walk away. They're trying to deescalate the situation. The officer gets out of his car and follows them. There's one point on the video where the officer tries to trip one of the guys, but then claims the guy assaulted him. Uh, he also says that Illinois is a two-party consent state for recording, and he doesn't consent to being recorded, so he could theoretically arrest him. But the particular wiretap statute he's talking about was found unconstitutional by the Illinois Supreme Court way back in 2014, and the new law only applies to recording that is surreptitious. So he doesn't even know the law properly. Uh, but we'll give you a link to the story in the video and all that other happy horseshit. Also out of Chicago, Robert Rialmo is back in the news again. Uh, we've talked about this fucking guy at least three times now. Episode 39, 42, and 66. He's the guy that killed two people and then sued his own department to say that the reason why he killed them is because he was not adequately trained. And then he assaulted two other guys in a bar. And then three days after that trial, apparently he got into another fight in another bar. So we give you a link to that story as well. Sorry I'm blazing through this, y'all, but we're already at an hour in on the recording, and I've still got fucking a dozen pages to go. So that's why I'm blazing through these stories, because I refuse to be here producing a two- or three-hour podcast. I'm not going to do it. Uh, that's out of Illinois, Kentucky, out of Campbell County. We've mentioned before about a real-life Pizzagate judge, Tim Nolan. He was a Trump activist who pled guilty to child trafficking. There's a long read on him and his downfall and how he came into all of the ridiculous shit that he got himself into. Uh, from the beginning of that story, it says, quote, If you want to know how Tim Nolan went from a judge to a man jailed for trading heroin for sex, you might start at the rabbit hole. That's a weathered dive bar now silent and shuttered just off a country road in rural northern Kentucky next to a crumbling trailer. Nolan owned the bar and the trailer both, as well as a sprawling farm in the hills of southern Campbell County. The rabbit hole is a real place, but it's also an apt metaphor for the dark and disorienting twists in Nolan's life. He crusaded against vice, became a tough-on-crime judge and school board member, labored for the Republican Party, then the Tea Party, then Donald Trump. And then came the women in the trailer and other properties, women he forced to have sex with him in exchange for heroin or threats of eviction. There was the dust-up over the Ku Klux Klan photo at the rabbit hole, a brain tumor, and finally an investigation that drew national attention. Nolan abruptly pleaded guilty to promoting human trafficking in February, and he will be sentenced this week. Uh, in Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice, there's a story out of New Orleans, quote, a defense attorney accused a New Orleans FBI agent on Thursday of staking out his family's home in Florida, a courtroom eruption that exposed long-simmering tensions in the prosecution of indicted federal lawman Chad Scott. Scott's attorneys also accused the U.S. Department of Justice of misleading the grand jury that indicted Scott on charges of perjury and stealing thousands of dollars in drug money. 
Subquote, the next time you want to surveil my wife and child, just come on in and we'll make you a cup of coffee. The attorney, Stephen Garcia, told FBI agent Chip Hardgrave, one of the lead investigators in the case. Subquote, will do. Hardgrave responded from the front row of the gallery. The veteran agent was seated next to an FBI colleague and two federal prosecutors who had traveled from Washington, D.C. for Thursday's hearing. The outburst came as Garcia took his seat at the defense table in the New Orleans courtroom. It highlighted the mounting acrimony in a case that has roiled the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration and resulted in two former DEA task force members pleading guilty to federal charges. The task force has been accused of shaking down suspects, dealing drugs, and stealing cash during federal drug raids along the Interstate 12 corridor. You may have heard something similar to that before in Baltimore with the Gun Trace Task Force. It just seems to be a thing with these different task forces. So that's out of Louisiana. In Minnesota, in Carver County, we have the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Because a 16-year-old boy was suicidal, his parents called police to try and get him help, and the police said challenge accepted and shot him dead. Uh, so 16-year-old Archer Amorosi of Minnetonka High School has now been summarily executed by the police of Carver County. We'll give you a link to that story. Uh, out of Minneapolis, we have the first rule of Fisk again. In this case, Park Police had handcuffed and drew their weapons on four black boys ranging in ages from uh, 13 to 16. And gosh, this is a long story. I'm not going to give you all this. But the gist of it is there's a viral video of the kids Apparently, a white guy was spouting racial slurs and threatening to attack them with a trash can lid. His girlfriend called the police to say that the four boys were attacking him and they had guns. Police showed up, and of course, they believed the white people that called the police. The aggressor white guy disappeared. They never actually got him arrested. And you see the video of a bystander who watched everything going on watching them arrest the kids. One of the kids doesn't have a shirt on, is asking the officers, hey, can you give me my shirt? I'm being eaten by mosquitoes as you have me sitting here for 30 minutes. And two of the kids get put into the cop car. The other two, they're all put in handcuffs, which, you know, if you're not free to leave, you're under arrest. So all four of them were under arrest. The bystanders talking to the police like, hey, why are you arresting these kids? They didn't do anything wrong. And the officer comes up and says, oh, we, we're, they're not under arrest. We're just investigating, which is bullshit. Uh, but then the next day, the police admit that no weapons were found on the boys. They were all released without charges because they had done nothing wrong. And the whole reason why they showed up as they did is because the aggressive white guy's girlfriend called the police to say they had guns. So we'll give you a link to that story. Uh, also in Minneapolis, we have a deep dive on rape charges and how the police don't bother to investigate. From that story, and some of these statistics, man, they're going to blow your fucking mind. Uh, it says, quote, A Star Tribune review of more than 1,000 sexual assault cases filed around the state in a recent two-year period reveals chronic errors and investigative failings by Minnesota's largest law enforcement agencies, including those in Minneapolis and St. Paul. In almost a quarter of the cases, records show police never assigned an investigator. In about one-third of them, the investigator never interviewed the victim. In half of the cases, police failed to interview potential witnesses. In most of the cases, about 75%, including violent rapes by strangers, were never forwarded to prosecutors for criminal charges. Overall, fewer than 1 in 10 reported sexual assaults produced a conviction. That's crazy. you got to think, out of all of the sexual assaults that are reported, 75%, 3 out of every 4, never get prosecuted. That's insane. So that's out of Minnesota. In Montana, in Missoula, we do have good news. 
Don't let it be said. I don't report good news. This is one of like three good news stories just in this episode. Uh, A man is in custody and a baby is recovering after being found alone in the woods. And from the story, it says, quote, the Missoula County Sheriff's Office responded Saturday night to reports of a man acting strangely in the Lolo Hot Springs area. More calls came in to dispatch and said the man was threatening people, claiming to have a gun and kept reaching into his pockets. Officials say when deputies arrived, they found the suspect, 32-year-old Francis Crowley, had left the area with a five-month-old baby. While deputies were looking for Crowley, a 911 call came in saying he had returned to the Hot Springs. Deputies found him there and arrested him. Crowley appeared to be under the influence of drugs and was not making sense. He reportedly told the sheriff's office that the baby was buried somewhere in the mountains. Officials reported that after six hours of searching on foot, a deputy heard the faint cry of a baby, followed the sound, and found the baby alive, face down and buried under a pile of sticks and debris. The baby was reportedly clothed in only a wet and soiled onesie. The infant was found at 2.30 in the morning when it was about 46 degrees outside. They think it was in the cold for about nine hours, but they took it to the hospital, and it is in good condition. Uh, That's in Montana out of New Jersey. We also have good news in New Jersey. Don't let it be said I don't report good news. Out of Atlantic City, a police officer rescued a 10-year-old boy whose leg was stuck in a wooden fence and was in danger of drowning while he swam at the beach after hours. Officers Daryl Catanio and Jonathan Walsh of the Atlantic City Police Department responded to the beach at South Carolina Avenue after they received a report of a swimmer screaming for help. The swimmer, a 10-year-old Philadelphia boy whose name was not released, had gotten his foot stuck in a wood groin used to prevent beach erosion. The water was chest high and waves continually crashed over his head. Catanio, a former member of the beach patrol, entered the water and was able to yank the boy's foot from the structure and carry him to the beach. In Wharton, a Wharton police officer has been suspended after being charged with making terroristic threats, criminal restraint, burglary, and stalking. Joseph LeBeau was charged Thursday after a joint investigation by the Sussex and Morris County Prosecutor's Offices. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, according to a criminal complaint and affidavit of probable cause, the charges relate to Lobu's pursuit of a woman between June 3rd and July 4th. The documents do not name the woman who told police she ended her relationship with him. The complaint alleges Lobu broke into the woman's home on July 4th by breaking a window and entering through the bathroom at 3.30 in the morning, later attempting to gain entry to her bedroom. The break-in followed several threatening phone calls earlier that night. She also said LeBeau threatened to, subquote, do terrible things to her if she continued to communicate with, subquote, certain parties. LeBeau remained at her residence until police arrived. The July 4 incident followed daily incidents from June 30 to July 3rd, in which LeBeau came to the residence at night or overnight to harass and berate her. On July 1st, the woman told police LeBeau arrived at 9.30 p.m., pushed her, and held her down on a coffee table while trying to gain access to her cell phone, then placed a hand over her mouth when she tried to call out to another person. Fry them. So that's out of New Jersey. In New York, in New York City... We have a firefighter who was suspended because he shit on a guy's lawn furniture. Well, it turns out he's actually back at work. From that story, it says, quote, The FDNY probationary firefighter suspended after he was arrested for defecating on a stranger's lawn furniture is back at work, officials said Saturday. Disgraced firefighter Joseph Cassano, the son of former city fire commissioner Sal Cassano, was reinstated to full duty after his 30-day suspension ended. He was charged with criminal trespass and criminal mischief for turning a person's yard into an outhouse. Cassano was accused of, subquote, recklessly or negligently damaging 
damaging property by, subquote, having a bowel movement on the victim's lawn furniture, leaving feces behind when he was intoxicated. After that, he allegedly entered a stranger's closed garage and went to sleep. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because we talked about him back in episode 41 because he was the guy who quit being an EMS person after it was found out that he had a whole bunch of hateful commentary on social media and actually ended up getting a promotion because as an EMT, he wasn't getting much, but as a firefighter, he got paid a lot more uh, by virtue of the fact that his daddy was the former fire commissioner. Uh, Also out of New York City, we have the fifth rule of Fisk. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. In this case, there's a long read on abuse by a police supervisor against a patrol officer, uh, from the story, this is, a, this is a lengthy story. I'm going to give you some of the intro. It says, quote, Jasmia Encerio was a rookie New York Police Department officer in her early 20s when a new supervisor took over at her precinct in Queens. The first time she met Lieutenant Jason Margolis, a hulking figure with big eyes and sagging cheeks, he seemed friendly enough. He liked to be on a first-name basis with his officers, but that friendliness quickly morphed into something darker. He started touching Encerio inappropriately, massaging her shoulders and putting his hand on her leg when they were alone. Only a couple months on the job, he drove her to his house and asked her to come inside, telling her not to worry. His wife was out of town. Finally, she decided to make a complaint to the Office of Equal Employment Opportunity, which is tasked with investigating claims of harassment and discrimination. That's when the bad situation became a disaster. It goes on from there, but the long end of it is that this particular officer, the one who was the victim, uh, got punished extensively, but the guy actually doing the harassment did not. Also out of New York City, we do have good news. This is, I think this is the fourth good news story. My goodness, I put a whole lot of good news in here. Uh, prisoners at Rikers Island will now get to make phone calls for free. The city council has passed a bill eliminating the extortionate prices that they used to charge to make a phone call. Uh, it used to bring in $8 million a year. And they're now going to get rid of that for the benefit of the inmates, which is astonishing. Like the, It's very good. Don't get me wrong, but that is astonishing to me that politicians are willing to create a $5 million budget hole for the benefit of people who are locked up. That's amazing. Uh, out of North Carolina, North Carolina has a lot of stories. It will start in Anson County, where one of the unit directors at Lanesboro Prison kept bloody shanks in his office to provide inmates for stabbings. So I'm not going to give you the details. I'm going to give you a link in the show notes for that one. Just know that's some creepy shit. Uh, The guy's name is Jeffrey Wall, and he kept the shanks in his ceiling tiles so that he could have them and uh, give them out to inmates when he wanted someone stabbed. That's all from a uh, trial taking place out west. In Durham, the guy running for State Senate District 22, the district that I ran for back in 2016, uh, turns out as a fucking nut. And in addition to that, he spent his career as a Durham County Sheriff's Deputy. So I'm not going to give you the details on this. I'm just going to give you the link. But just know the guy's name is Ricky Padgett, and he's fucking insane. Out of Iredell County, I'm not going to give you the details on this because the story doesn't have the details on it yet. Uh, But basically, an off-duty cop was killed when his uh, motorcycle was run over by an on-duty patrol car. 
so basically, Sheriff's Corporal Bill Wood was pronounced dead at the scene, and Sheriff's Deputy Justin Betts crashed into him as he was trying to drive into a gas station. Uh, it's still a developing story. Don't really know what happened there, but that's just some weird shit. Uh, out of Raleigh, we have another candidate for office who is in some uh, weird judicial stuff. In this case, the guy's name is Steve Von Lohr. He is the Republican candidate for the 4th Congressional District, and he was in Wake County District Court dealing with a request for a domestic violence restraining order because apparently he has a habit of beating his ex-wife. So we'll give you a link to that story. Also out of Raleigh, we have yet another example of the uh, the failures of the McCrory administration. It says, quote, prison officials in North Carolina have agreed to pay the federal government nearly $200,000 in order to wrap up an investigation into the improper handling of drugs inside two Raleigh prisons. The state paid a $190,000 fine to settle with the Trump administration's Department of Justice instead of fighting the allegations. The federal investigation found that from 2014 to 2016, prison workers gave out controlled substances like prescription drugs but failed to document what happened with them. The investigators discovered this happened dozens of times at Central Prison, which is home to the state's death row, as well as at the North Carolina Correctional Center for Women. Both are near downtown Raleigh. It's unclear whether the workers dispensed the drugs legitimately and then forgot to fill out paperwork, or whether they were purposefully avoiding paperwork in order to either sell the drugs to prisoners or steal the drugs for themselves. Now, here's the thing. You don't forget to do paperwork dozens upon dozens of times over a four-year time span. It just doesn't happen. They were trying to make some money by absconding with the pills and selling them to people. Uh, so that's out of Raleigh, out of Robeson County. This is a it's a unique spin. So sometimes you hear in economic circles the statement, supply creates its own demand. You can't demand what you don't first supply. And that's just a reference to the fact that if you don't work and get some form of income, you can't actually go buy anything and that the more income you get, the more stuff you buy. So, well, basically, you have <laughs> you have 10 firefighters and a police officer and a corrections officer who have now all been charged because they have been deliberately setting fires, burning down homes on their own as a way of trying to create demand for their respective services. So I'm going to give you the link. The story links different reports from other news agencies because this has been covered by a lot of different people because it's fucking bonkers. So I'm going to give you the link in the show notes to the compilation of it. But basically 12 law enforcement officials, 10 firefighters, one police officer, and one Department of Corrections officer have all been charged for subquote numerous arsons. So those are the stories out of North Carolina in Pennsylvania. We got three stories this week. We'll start in Lancaster. We talked in a prior episode about the video of Lancaster police tasing an unarmed black man for sport. As you have one officer giving him one command, a different officer giving him a contradictory command, and you see the video of the guy trying to comply with both, but he can't, so he gets tased in the process, you will undoubtedly be shocked to find that the officer who did the tasing will not be disciplined in any way at all whatsoever. From that story, it says, quote, a Lancaster, Pennsylvania police officer will not be suspended or fired for using a stun gun on an unarmed man who appeared to be complying with his demands last month. The city's mayor said on Monday. Mayor Deneen Soros said at a news conference that an investigation determined that Philip Bernat 
did not violate the city's current use-of-force policies when he used a stun gun on a 27-year-old black man who was sitting on a curb. Subquote, the preliminary findings of the investigation are that his actions complied with the city's current use-of-force and taser policies, which authorizes use in various situations, including a failure to respond to multiple verbal commands. She added that city officials were working to update the policies. Now, here's the thing. As many of these cases that we see every single week, you would think more municipalities would have updated their policies already. You don't need to have a situation happen before you find out that you need to actually change your policies. But they don't. They don't update their policies because the love of police brutality is strongly bipartisan. Both Democrats and Republican politicians love it. Uh, out of Minersville, Minersville Police Department officer Ashley Michelle has been indicted for welfare fraud. She stole more than $7,000 in SNAP benefits while she was working full-time as an officer. We'll give you a link to that story. Out of Reading, Pennsylvania, this shit is crazy. Now, you know from listening to us that every now and then, weed possession is a death penalty offense depending on where you are. But in Pennsylvania, apparently that gets enforced at the tip of a bulldozer. Uh, where they actually had a guy crushed to death from the story in the Reading Eagle. It says, quote, a 51-year-old Reading man fleeing police Monday was found dead underneath a bulldozer being operated by a Pennsylvania Game Commission worker and carrying a state trooper. Gregory Longenecker was pronounced dead on state game lands near Snyder School Road and South Garfield Road. Police identified him today. A second man faces charges of possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, trespassing, and conspiracy. David Light was arraigned Monday night. He is free on $25,000 bail. Bohm, who is the, uh, the chief, apparently, of this particular department, said that the charges were based on 10 marijuana plants being found growing in the area where the incident occurred. These guys were growing 10 weed plants in game lands, and the police freaked the fuck out. State police did not release the name of the bulldozer operator or the trooper, but as you read through the story, basically, Light surrendered. He was arrested almost immediately. Longenecker ran. So whether they finding him later, which they could have done because they already had his accomplice in custody, they called out the drug dogs, they called out a helicopter, they called out the bulldozer, and basically ran this guy over and crushed his ass to death. So, yeah, it's some... Jesus. Hell of a way to go. Uh, that's in Pennsylvania. Out of Texas, in El Paso, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they are being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, A video showing an El Paso police officer pointing his gun at a group of children has gone viral. The incident, which occurred on Thursday and resulted in the officer being placed on desk duty, is being investigated, city officials said. El Paso Deputy City Manager Dion Mack and El Paso Police Department spokesman Enrique Carrillo said at a news conference that an adult and a minor were arrested for interfering with the duties of a police officer. No injuries were reported. We'll give you a link to the story that has the video in it. If you watch it, what you find is that the... Uh, the officer is trying, there's probably about a dozen kids in the video that the officer is trying to corral as they're talking shit back to him. Uh, so he pulls out his gun, pulls out his nightstick, and if you watch, there's one particular person recording everything on their phone, 
as I guess one of the kids' mothers comes up and is like, what the fuck are you doing? Well, the officer, when other police arrive, goes out of his way to arrest the kid with the phone who's actually recording everything. Uh, so it's it's in a totally inappropriate conduct when you're dealing with a bunch of unarmed kids, preteens and teens. Uh, but then to arrest the guy that's recording you is a huge constitutional violation as well. Out of McKinney, Texas. Now, you might remember McKinney as the spot where police broke up a pool party. And in the process, one particular officer pinned a black teenage girl to the ground and was basically beating the fuck out of her. And that went viral. Well, that case has now settled from the story. It says, quote, the family of a teen in a viral video that showed a McKinney police officer forcing her onto her stomach and placing his knees on her back while breaking up a pool party has reached a settlement with the officer and the city of McKinney in a federal lawsuit. The statement said all claims against then officer Eric Casebolt and the city of McKinney will be dismissed. Under the terms of the settlement, the plaintiffs and their attorneys will be paid $184,850, of which about $150,000 is going to go to Dejeria Becton, who was the 15-year-old girl in the video. Uh, Out of San Antonio, (laughs) this this is the testament to the power of public sector unions. A San Antonio police lieutenant with a long history of disciplinary problems, is in trouble again, accused of making a homophobic remark about police chief William McManus. Here's the crazy shit. This guy has already been fired four times and suspended 11 times and has a total of 17 disciplinary actions in all, but he is still on the force. Uh, So we give you a link to this story. But basically, if you go through all of this guy's disciplinary record since he started, he's been suspended for a total of 300-something days. He spent almost a year on unpaid leave in some form or another for being a dick. Uh, In this particular story, he was commenting that the police chief, who had knee surgery, so he was wearing shorts, apparently Lieutenant Lee Rackin, he's the guy who's had all these disciplinary issues, uh, he said they looked faggy. So they ended up, that became his latest issue. But the guy's just a dick. You go through the list and he's, he's should not be on the force, but you can't get rid of him because of these contracts that the departments sign with the labor unions. And this is in Texas. Texas is not exactly known as a pro-union area, but it's a police union. So, of course, they get to do whatever they want because Republicans love police and law and order and Democrats love public sector unions. Uh, So those are the stories out of Texas in Virginia. Out of Charlottesville, we have good news again. I think this is five stories. This is a reminder that police killing people who are armed is a choice, and they can choose not to do so. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Charlottesville police used tear gas and flashbang grenades Thursday morning to arrest a man who fired a handgun in his house during a domestic dispute and then hid from police for four hours. Alexander Rogers was arrested shortly after noon when police tactical teams fired gas into the home in which he was holed up. Neither Rogers nor any other officers were injured in the arrest. So they managed to take an armed black guy into custody without killing him. That should be an example for other departments around the country. Finally, out of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Common Council on Tuesday approved a $3.4 million settlement with the ACLU of Wisconsin over police stop-and-frisk practices. That's because stop-and-frisk typically is unconstitutional. Uh, Story says, quote, the agreement approved on a 12 to 2 vote would limit Milwaukee's costs and fees for a consultant required as part of the deal to about $1.5 million. That consultant fee would be paid on top of the $1.9 million 
in attorney's fees associated with the case. Alderman Bob Donovan noted the skyrocketing costs for the city linked to police misconduct settlements. The Journal Sentinel reported last month that the cost of such lawsuits since 2015 had reached roughly $22 million. Donovan said the city's attorney's office told Alderman that police failed to fill out reports, failed to do appropriate documentation. The settlement would include a five-year consent decree requiring the department and the city's fire and police commission, the civilian oversight board, to reform stop-and-search practices, improve data collection, and require officers to undergo more training on stops and searches. Woo! That's it. We made it through all of that, and it's only an hour and a half. Hell yeah. So we'll give you a link to all of these stories, every single one. All of these links are going to be in the show notes. And people ask, how do you get to the show notes? Well, the short answer is you usually have to go to our website, fiscamall.com. It's F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. Every single episode will have hyperlinks to every single media story that we use as part of our outline. Now, some podcast apps... Uh, we'll have the show notes as part of the things so like Apple podcasts used to do really good stuff where you could get all the things just by clicking the little button in your app. Uh, they started taking out the hyperlinks and capping the show note length. So you can't really get that stuff anymore. Uh, but go to our website, fiscamall.com. You'll see all of it there. You can share links with your friends if anyone doubts the stuff that you hear because I source the fuck out of this podcast. There is nothing you're going to hear leave my mouth that does not tie back to a hyperlink somewhere in the show notes. Uh, so amazingly, we have gotten all of those 50-something stories in in under an hour and a half. Uh, so on behalf of myself and Mike, the sound guy, thank you all for listening. Uh, please leave us a five-star rating. Leave us a written review. Nominate us for the 13th Annual Podcast Awards. Thank you for being amazing people and dealing with me not having Thursday episodes when we're supposed to have Thursday episodes and sitting through hearing my voice for an hour and a half on a Monday. I appreciate every single one of you, and I hope all of you have a fantastic week, and we'll talk to you next Monday. <laughs>